From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, 10 questions for Walmart's sustainable fleet leader, why BP investors are backing a climate resolution, what's the right word on climate change, and what happens when a rising young sustainability star gets laid off. It's raining pink slips this week on 350. It's May 24th, 2019. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Hope all of you are getting ready for Memorial Day weekend here in the United States. Joining me from the East Coast Bureau in Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. You around this weekend? What are your plans? I am sort of around this weekend. I'm heading south to a place called Lambertville, New Jersey. It, it is across this, the river from New Hope, Pennsylvania. Ooh, I love that. And Yeah. And the area is known probably best for, well, antiques for one thing, but also uh, it's, it's the site of where um, George Washington made his crossing of the Delaware. So Ooh, a little cool. historical thing. Yeah, it should be beautiful there. Uh, you getting good spring weather? I it is so exquisitely beautiful. It was it's weird though. It's it's doing the the flip thirty degrees thing. It was about eighty degrees on Monday, um, and then it dropped down to fifty <laughs> last night. So we're kind of flipping around here. It's spring. I love it. It's it's the lovely shade of hopeful green. And, nice. Uh, it's wonderful, uh, wonderful for me to 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 look out the window and think about it. Um, what about you? What's up? I think there's some really cool things in your life right now. Well, um, gosh, let me think. Um, yeah, there's, there's cool things. What, uh, I, I'm getting ready to go to Europe for a couple of weeks in the beginning of June. I've got a whole series of meetings and things going on in Geneva, uh, Amsterdam and London. I'll be reporting from those places during those weeks. Um, and, um, dare I say the word, Woodstock. I heard there's a film crew coming to your house. Well, there's two couple things going on. One is, so most people probably don't know that 30 years ago, 1988, 89, I, I produced an oral history of the Woodstock Music Festival that came out in both a book and audio format um, back in 1989 for the 20th anniversary. Um, you do the math this year, it's 50th anniversary of Woodstock, and there's a number of things going on, possibly a, a concert. It's still up in the air. But uh, the interviews I did with producers, performers, stagehands, kids in the audience, a bunch of different people, like 60-plus interviews, which was the basis of the oral history, were integrated, along with interviews with me, into a feature documentary that's uh, opening well, that opened at the Tribeca Film Festival last month, and it's going to be opening again uh, in theatrically in a number of cities, including the Bay Area. At, well, next weekend on the thirty-first, and so I'll be doing a panel there afterwards with the director Barrett Goodman. He's an Emmy Award-winning and Oscar-nominated documentarian, and um, and yeah, there's a CNN film crew coming to my house uh, next week to because uh, they're doing a documentary. So somehow. This thing I did 30 years ago uh, on Woodstock, I, I can't seem to, seem to shake, and it's 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 kind of fun. Mm -hmm. It is kind of fun. I I was going to ask if you were. I was wondering about the math. I'm like, wait, what was he there? He must have been like two. Well, but, uh... God bless you for that. Uh, uh, <laughs> people all people all the t all the time ask me, were you there? Uh, and my answer is. I can't remember. Um, no, no, no. Uh, I was not there. Um, I was, in fact, 17 years old that summer, not two. Um, and I uh, was uh, here in, in Oakland, where I, was, where I grew up. My sister hitchhiked out for it. I was in a rock and roll band that summer of 1969, but um, I did not go. But it, it felt like a a seminal moment, uh, it, it, not necessarily musically, it was far from the best rock and roll concert ever. A lot of performers, uh, Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead uh, was famous for saying, we were terrible at Woodstock. Um, mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and a lot of other performers, you know, short of, of Jimi Hendrix, who 
did this Star Spangled Banner or Country Joe with his famous fish cheer and a couple of others, uh, Joe Cocker maybe, uh, who made it big in the movie, didn't really have career-making uh, uh, performances there. But the story behind how this came together and why it shouldn't have happened and why it should have been a disaster and why it wasn't is really a fascinating story. Anyway, if uh, those of you listening are interested um, in seeing what 1989 me was like, uh, I was uh, on both uh, Today's Show with Arlo Guthrie and uh, Oprah with Country Joe McDonald and Richie Havens, Mm -hmm. and you can go to macower.com slash Woodstock and see mm-hmm. those video clips um, just uh, <laughs> and uh, astute. Well, I'll tell you, so you won't have to be astute. Astute viewers will know that I'm wearing the same shirt in both clips, even though they were on different days. <gasps> Shocking. Well, yeah. I congratulations on that. It's a fun. It's a fun thing, and and I really I'm I'm jealous. <laughs> I just think what a great experience. I I'm I'm in awe of you having that connection yeah good on you well thank you um and meanwhile we had r- uh, rain in may in the bay area record rain for the month of may uh, really mm-hmm. bizarre um and uh, you know welcome of course because we need the rain here but you know it's dare i say almost as if the climate is changing but is that the word you want to use i mean climate change do you call it climate change do you call it global warming do you call it global i don't know weirding i just what word should we use Joel? yeah well that's uh, that's the question and that's a piece i wrote this past week about what's the word on climate and um you know some of that came about because we at our green biz executive network meetings this month we've been sort of field testing a couple of terms uh one of which is carbon removal and another is energy resilience, asking our executive network members, who are kind of an informal brain trust, are those terms relevant? Do they resonate? Uh, do they know what they mean? And it turns out they didn't. They didn't find those com- compelling or relevant. It's not how they talk within their companies, which is extraordinarily valuable information. But it does bring up the case of how do we, what is the language? Language in sustainability has long been a a sticking point, including the word sustainability. People say, I hate the word sustainability, but we don't have a better word for it, you know, triple bottom line or whatever. Um, And yet we use it and we're sort of stuck with it. And the same with climate change, which, by the way, was inserted into the conversation by the conservative right-wing denying community um, in opposition to global warming, um, I think Frank Lutz, the uh, Republican pollster and, and um, meme maker, was responsible for that, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. Um, but we've adopted it, you know, but it's confusing. You know, what's wrong with climate change? It, climate's always changing, at least people think. That's really called weather, most of it. But it's changed over millennia, certainly. So maybe this is just natural. And global warming, well, if I live in Canada, I may not, I may not be so opposed to that. If, if all of a sudden I can farm land where I didn't farm before or even... You know, someone, uh, a friend at uh, in the potato industry said that the potato belt, and yes, there is one from uh, Idaho all the way up to Maine, uh, is now shifting northward. And, and so there are some, yes, some Canadian farmers who can grow potatoes that they couldn't before. Anyway, it, it, this whole thing about language is is really fascinating. Yeah, and and it does make me, it does give me pause because it makes me think about the words I'm choosing to use in my headlines, in our headlines, in my stories. And, you know, because we need to talk to everyone, not just the converted. And, and I do think it's important, especially for the marketing folks out there listening to this right now, for us to get our story straight, if you will, and to get our story consistent. Right. And I have to say that as I looked at this, and I also looked at a research that was done by a New York firm called Spark Neuro, which is a neuroanalytics company that measures emotion and attention to optimize advertising and entertainment. They did a study on this of Democrats, Republicans, and independents in the United States. And for six different terms uh, that around what we're default calling climate change. And they found that, um, you know, climate change and global warming were actually two of the weakest from a sense of emotional reactions from both Republicans and Democrats. And the one they, that they thought was uh, went well, and, uh, and I kind of like to, is 
climate crisis, uh, which really speaks to uh, it's you know all right we can warm we can change those might be neutral in some people's eyes, but a crisis not so much. Crisis is definitely something that needs immediate attention. So I don't know we we'll have to figure it out. Uh, you know can we start talking about a climate crisis instead of climate change? or at least insert that into the mix more, I think uh, we, we should look at that. Meanwhile, while we're looking at that, let's look back at the Week in Review. I'll get us started, Joel, this week with a story from our very own Katie Fernbacher, who covers transportation issues, and she's been building our Verge 19 program for transportation and, and as a result has been talking to a lot of great leaders, including the sustainable fleet person at Walmart, and that is uh, Jennifer Wheeler. And so she's got a great interview based on their conversation and prep for for the conference on uh, how, how the company is looking at um, alternative fuel options, the fact that they uh, they may be testing different uh, semi trucks, you know, and I think for me one of the the strongest themes that that jumped out was the fact that you know we 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 use terms so you know go back to the wordplay again we use terms like electric vehicle or electric truck so broadly that we have to get much more definitive and finite about what we use to describe. And the point that she makes is that in the truck world, there's absolutely a, a fragmentation happening as far as the format that, that uh, companies are going to be investing. And the long haul um, probably won't be electric. It's going to be t- tough, at least for some time, to, to use those options, whereas short, predictable routes are the ones that are um, probably going to move first. Natural gas is is also um, becoming more of a meme. We actually had a another story up from Katie about a, a commitment that UPS made to natural gas as a as a fleet option for their for their delivery vehicles. So um, it's just a great piece. Ten uh, ten things that that you might want to know from from Jennifer Wheeler and and what Walmart is doing with all sorts of different uh, transportation modes. And can we acknowledge just for a half a second that the head of Fleet transportation at Walmart is last name is Wheeler. Just have to say that. Uh, oh. <laughs> oh, it's all about puns and word plays today. Well, you know, as I wrote this week, uh, that's how I'm wired. That's um, how you're wired. But but yeah. I think that what's what's interesting here, Heather, is that uh, a number of things. One is that it's yes, it's the it's the actual propulsion of the truck. Uh, but the semis that are used, uh, particularly for, for retailers, distribution centers and all that, use energy in other ways, too, such as idling to keep the uh, air conditioning on if that driver is, is sleeping there during, uh, during summer months, for example, or heat in the winter. Uh, but keeping refrigeration going in the, uh, in the truck if you have perishable goods, uh, idling uh, you know, at, at the loading dock and a number of other things. And there's a number of technologies uh, that are being used already for years by Walmart and others uh, to reduce drag, to uh, reduce the energy use uh, in that way. And also there's a, a wider variety of fuels. So you can use natural gas or maybe even fuel cells uh, because uh, particularly with these trucks that return to a central facility where you can have refueling stations from things that are perhaps more exotic than diesel fuel. So I think that's just, there's a lot of really interesting things going on here. Uh, And I think that Walmart's been leading the drive, as it were, for sustainable uh, transportation um, in its fleet for a long, long time. To put a bow on it, I think it's also worth noting, Joel, that the former, uh, one of the former Walmart sort of logistics and supply chain and, and fleet people um, actually went to Nikola, which is a company that's doing hydrogen-powered electric semis. And that was Elizabeth Fretheim. And she, she left. That's where she went after her time at Walmart. So definitely lots of great innovation and thinking going on. And um, I think a wonderful topic and glad that, that Katie continues to, to drive us forward on that front. And Nikola is the first name of Nikola Tesla. And that brings us to a story that we had this week from Mark Tule, who is the senior director at uh, CECP, which is uh, addressing short-term market constraints. And he wrote about exactly that in a piece called The Tale of Two Companies, Tesla, Ford, and the Need for Long-Term Plans. 
And this is a topic that we've been talking about for a long time in sustainability, which is the, how short-termism that's driven by Wall Street and its quarterly earnings reports and, and all the pressures that go around with that is is really running and and antithetically not just to environmental sustainability but uh, human capital and a number of uh, investing in innovation and a number of other things, and he talks about uh, you know, how we're starting to see a number of companies really step up and and make the case for long termism I guess you could call it a number of companies uh, he, he wrote about at a at a investor forum recently from IBM. GSK, which is a drug company, Johnson & Johnson, uh, Nestle, NRG, Unilever, and UPS, and a bunch of institutional investors, including State Street, Vanguard, BlackRock, Goldman Sachs, expressed their interest in how we could uh, have CEOs publicly present their company's long-term plans for long-term growth and, and other things that um, embrace the, the notion of long-termism in uh, in the corporate world, and hopefully maybe change the dynamic. So one of the things that I took away from this particular article was the uh, the framework that that um, this organization that um, Mark belongs to expects as far as these plans. Well, actually, I should step back even further. I love that the CEOs are the ones talking about this, right? It has to be at that level. Um, and so this points back to what I was just going to say, which is that these plans must be transparent, right? They have to be disclosed back to the earnings call. They have to be talked about on the earnings calls um, in some way. In, and they have to be, if not on the earnings calls, at least in some public forum, that they should be more closely integrating environmental, social, and governance issues. Not a surprise. It's something we've been harping on for, for months now. Um, and that they should be forward-looking, the, the the outlook spanning three to seven years. And so I, you know, I I love how they they sort of really are specific about what is this long-term plan and how do you how do you frame it up. One of the complaints that we often hear from corporate sustainability officers is that they cannot get their material into a quarterly call, right? And and part of that is because there's quote a script. And I think that. The companies, yes, they they are sort of somewhat beholden to the short-term outlooks, but but they can change that script. So it's a choice. You choose what to say on those calls, and you should be talking. There are long-term questions. I've been on many of those calls, believe me, and it is a choice. And once one company and one industry starts doing that, I think it's going to help push the others to, to think about and talk about long-term planning. Yeah, and one of the things that might also help is the uh, advent of something called the Long-Term Stock Exchange, LTSE. You can learn about it at ltse.com, uh, which is the brainchild of uh, Eric uh, Reese, who's a longtime entrepreneur, uh, investor. Uh, he wrote the, the New York Times bestseller, The Lean Startup, after a stint at Kleiner Perkins, the venture capital firm. And uh, he's now the CEO and founder of uh, LTSE, the Long-Term Stock Exchange. Um, he says, we're building a market where companies are rewarded for choosing to innovate, invest in their employees, and to seed future growth and where companies can run their businesses with a stewardship that's similarly aligned shareholders, stakeholders, and society demand. Uh, and one of the interesting things there is that just earlier this month, on May 10th, the long-term stock exchange was approved as a national securities exchange by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Um, what that means in terms of will there ever be an actual stock market, uh, stock exchange uh, on we're focusing on long-term uh, thinking companies and what the requirements of that are, uh, TBD. But um, that's interesting. And then, of course, you know, can the LTSE compete with NYSE, uh, the big board, New York Stock Exchange, and uh, uh, NASDAQ, and, and all the other stock exchanges around the world? But at least this is getting a conversation going. And, yeah, that's maybe a low bar, but I think it's, it's, it's still a pretty interesting Thing. And, and by the way, uh, last thing on this, it, this is not uncontroversial. There are folks who disagree with that notion that, that we don't do long-term thinking and investing and uh, strategy, uh, and they point to biotech, 
where a lot of investment was made years and years before anything was profitable and these companies uh, you know, made long-term commitments around drugs that were going to be three to five or more years you know, before they got to market. So near-term profit isn't always the holy grail, uh, but uh, it, it, it certainly is, uh, is the rule and we need to make it uh, a little bit less of that and more the exception. The last piece that we'd love to point to this week comes from our friends in London, Michael Holder with Business Screen, and it has to do with BP and the, the BP investors, the annual shareholder meeting, and sort of what's what's at stake in the, the company's proxy statements. They, you know, as we've been reporting, both Shell and, and BP have been stepping up their investments in low carbon industries and but there's still you know there's still a lot of issues with with what their shareholders want or with the, some what some of their shareholders are proposing with how far they're going um, there's you know some question as to whether these are sort of movements uh, statements and, and you know in name only and and how 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 really serious are these companies about addressing climate change issues to go back to a word we were just <laughs> debating a, a few minutes ago. Um, but uh, anyway, so there's a piece that uh, they had their, their, their meeting this week. And I think it, it's a great, basically a summary of where things stand and, and what uh, other companies in the oil and gas industry can expect as far as uh, investor scrutiny. Right. And, and this is sort of back to the future in a certain kind of way. Uh, BP has become sort of a pariah in the environmental community because of the the oil spill, I think 2012, that was, uh, and the carelessness that was seen going into that. But at one point, uh, BP was one of the heroes. And what kicked that off, similarly to this week's story, was a speech that then-CEO John Brown gave at Stanford University in 1997 and in that speech, he talked about climate change and acknowledged that, that it was a re real and, a, and it needed to be dealt with and that we needed to take responsibility for the future of our planet. Um, and it really taking up what he calls taking precautionary action now. And uh, that was really sort of different. And, and then, of course, not that long or a few years after that, BP turned its, uh, its initials into a marketing slogan, Beyond Petroleum that uh, really turned out to be, well, I have to say greenwash because they never got beyond 1% of their revenue in uh, things beyond oil and gas, like solar and wind. But they, uh, they, they were the good guys for a while. And, and um, you know, yeah, they screwed up and, and it was pretty awful. But I'm encouraged and I'm all about redemption. Uh, and we've seen a lot of companies, you know, I remind people that at one point, Walmart, Nike, and Apple, and Amazon were all evil empires in the environmental world because they were uh, not doing things or they weren't talking about things that they might have been doing. So I think this is enc encouraging. And this is also uh, credit to uh, this this more recent action where BP investors uh, holding around $13 billion of shares uh, co-filed a resolution urging the company to set out a business strategy consistent with the goals of the Paris Agreement and that BP's board already said it will support the resolution at this year's annual uh, general meeting. I, I mean, uh, there, for me, there were two big things. That one is that it is a, it's a, a stake of this magnitude. This is a large, this is not just some fringe element. So that's a the sort of puts a bow on it. Plus, British companies and the European oil companies have been sort of a leading indicator for what's happening with the shareholders of the um, US companies. So it's like one of these that that for me is sort of the thing that if I was a US oil and gas company, I'd be watching. The Institute for Local Self-Reliance works to build strong local economies through initiatives focused on everything from energy democracy to neighborhood-led recycling programs. The Institute hosts a bi-weekly podcast called Building Local Power, featuring conversations with lawmakers, journalists, and advocates about ways that communities can chart their own economic futures. Our next segment features one of the co-hosts, John Farrell, who directs the Energy Democracy Initiative at the Institute. John is also the author of a blog called Energy Self-Reliant States, 
which assesses states based on their renewable energy potential. John, welcome to the Green Biz 350 podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So first, give us a little bit more information about your podcast. Uh, give us a plug here. What's the mission and where can listeners find it? So the, the Building Local Power podcast is really about helping tell the story of the mission of our organization, which is, as you might expect, to build local power, build power in local economies uh, as we fight uh, corporate concentration in the economy. And so you can see that across the different areas we work in, whether it's local businesses or whether it's just decentralized energy production, or as you mentioned, you know, neighborhood recycling or composting programs. And building local power is really about helping tell that story. So interviews with interesting policymakers, prominent thinkers, uh, or conversations among ILSR staff about where we're seeing opportunities to build local power in economies uh, and, and to fight back against the the trend toward corporate consolidation and concentration in the economy. Mm -hmm. So power is literally energy, electricity, as well as power, <laughs> economic potential. Yes, as you might guess, we, we enjoy wordplay. Uh, we have another podcast actually for the energy program specifically called Local Energy Rules, which again, uh, ends up also being a play in words because rules in that case is both uh, a way to highlight how cool we think local energy is, but as well, it's a focus on the rules of the system. Uh, and that's very much true throughout our organization is that we do focus on the way that the rules uh, for our economy structure who benefits, uh, who wins and, and who does not. Yeah. So given your mission, there is really a lot we could talk about, <laughs> but let's start with the positive. So which states are showcasing the most leadership when it comes to policies and incentives that support the concept of self-reliance, especially from an energy perspective? So that's the, that's the focus of your blog. So where should we look? Well, I'm glad you asked about this. This is actually one of the things that we've endeavored to make easier for people to understand through an annual release of what we call our Community Power Scorecard. And so uh, we have uh, done it now for about three years uh, it's based off a, a site where we keep kind of regular tabs on this called the Community Power Map. And the idea is essentially let's score states based on the way that their rules, that their uh, policies, their incentives, uh, the authority that they grant to cities allows communities to chart their own energy future. Uh, everything from policies that support rooftop solar to community solar gardens uh, to the degree to which they allow for communities to choose where their energy supply comes from rather than having uh, solely to rely on one monopoly utility company. So I, my friends in Oakland, California, always talk about California. I'm just curious, you know, other states that, that we should be looking to for leadership. It, you know, anyone jump to mind? Well, it, a couple of states jump out and are often not surprising to people who work in the energy business, New York and California, uh, both states with fairly progressive uh, political leadership uh, and legislatures, and therefore that have passed a lot of policies supportive of clean energy generally. So you see a lot of climate, pro-climate policy in both of those states. Um, some of the states that are a little less expected are places like Illinois or Ohio or Massachusetts. And one thing all of these states have in common, along with New York and California, is that they allow for a policy called community choice aggregation which basically is letting communities choose where their energy supply comes from uh, and, and rather than simply relying on a single utility. Uh, states like Illinois also have, or Massachusetts also support community solar programs, uh, ways, uh, you know, a tool that allows people who don't have access to their own sunny rooftop to subscribe to solar and, and to get a reduction uh, on their energy bill, or maybe even be a part owner of a project like that. So those are the kinds of policies that we track and the kinds of states that we see leading. Um, and it's interesting because sometimes you have states that, you know, you, you think of as climate leaders because of their progressive leadership. Maybe they've made commitments broadly to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And other times you have states like Maryland or New Jersey or Minnesota that don't necessarily jump out at people when they initially think about climate, but have passed a lot of very good policies for encouraging local leadership on climate. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about one type of technology for a moment. Um, energy storage, right? We talk about these big batteries that could, you, your, your institute is about self-reliance. This is about resilience, <laughs> energy storage and microgrids and so forth. And um, I live near New York, so I'm very aware that they have, I think one of the biggest targets, it's about three gigawatts of capacity by 2030. I think that's the number. And, you know, so I know that a lot of states are lining up behind this sort of concept of these big batteries. It could help with uh, 
reliability and so forth and, and taking people off of their reliance on the local utility, especially if the power goes out. What, just curious, what's, do you see a, a reality when it comes to actual installations? So like, that's the vision, but what, what's the reality? I don't hear a lot about, about a lot of actual installations. Um, are you seeing them happening? So where we're seeing them so far is in some interesting places. Um, you know, first of all, we have sort of the leading edge states. So you have states where solar energy first took off because you have a combination of uh, a good solar resource and high electricity prices. Those are the kind of states we're seeing energy storage take off at the retail level where customers are saying, hey, if I'm going to install solar, maybe I'll do storage as well. So Sunrun, it's uh, the, one of the largest national solar installers, has said that in the last year, about one in 10 of their customers are adding storage at the same time that they do solar. Uh, we're also seeing this uh, in Hawaii, and that's you know a, in part a, a factor of the rules for uh, compensating people for energy production. They no longer have net metering, which allowed people to get a credit on a one-to-one -one credit on their bill for every kilowatt hour they would produce from solar on their rooftop. And instead, they have a policy that encourages people to self-supply, which is to say, use that energy themselves. So energy storage has become a much bigger opportunity uh, in in Hawaii as a result. And, and uh, Adam Browning from Vote Solar famously calls Hawaii a postcard from the future. And so what I would say is, we're not seeing a huge amount of development yet. We're seeing a lot of utilities sort of trying it out. They're doing a multi-megawatt installation. They're trying to see, you know, how does it work and interface with their grid system? How does it work and interface with a, a solar installation? But it's places like Kauai Island, uh, which is a co-op in Hawaii that are massively deploying it. Or it's when we're seeing bids for power that will come online in a couple of years in Colorado for Excel Energy, where they're seeing solar and energy storage or wind combined with energy storage uh, coming in at lower prices than any other uh, energy supply option, including natural gas, including coal. And so um, they, we're really on the cusp, both in terms of the retail level where things are really just getting started uh, and at, uh, at the wholesale level where utilities are buying. Uh, and we actually, and uh, just to add one other piece of color to that retail side, we have a map in a report we published last year called reverse power flow, where we were looking at this intersection of uh, solar energy and energy storage for uh, retail customers. And in just two or three years, most customers across the country, and as many as 90% in some states, will actually be able to produce energy more cheaply from their own rooftop combined with a battery than they can buy from the utility company. And so that's going to be a real turning point at which it becomes much more of an economic decision than one just about resiliency, you know, in the event that the power goes out. Right. So now one of the Institute's missions is to, you know, help push back against corporate overreach, if you will. Um, but my audience is very much about corporate um, champions of self-reliance, of, of resilience, of community partnerships. So... Let's, let's accentuate the positive, if you will. Um, what role do you see businesses playing to help communities become more self-reliant, um, especially from the energy standpoint? Or could you, you know, you mentioned, actually, you mentioned a couple of utilities a moment ago, but can you discuss any specific examples of partnerships um, or policy advocacy from businesses that seems to have worked? So I think, you know, one, one, thing I want to definitely emphasize about the Institute's mission is that we are not anti-corporate. What we are opposed to is the consolidation of power within a single or just a small set of corporations within an entire economic sector. So our concern is about big players like Walmart or Amazon that seek to control the entire market in which they play. Uh, you know, um, pharmacy benefit managers that seek to uh, keep independent pharmacies from being able to compete. Monopoly utility companies that try to change the rules so that third parties can't get into the market. So we're very interested in a vibrant, uh, private and competitive economy uh, of lots of businesses uh, in the energy sector. And a good example of this is Minnesota's community solar program. One of the things that we're most proud of about that program is that it prevents the utility company from owning any of the solar energy that is produced under the program, and it sets standardized rules for anybody to play. So we have over 4,000 jobs that have been created in Minnesota uh, in service of about 
5,000, sorry, not 5,000, 500 megawatts of solar that have been installed in the state. Uh, a whole range of both large and small solar developers have participated in the program. It's helped create a lot of new businesses that are uh, both uh, working with those developers or um, uh, working with customers in order to help them subscribe to the community solar program. So it's really a success up and down uh, the structure it introduced a new form of competition for customers to be able to choose where they get their energy from. And it introduced new ways for new businesses or businesses that were uh, competitive in other states to get into the Minnesota market. And that's definitely something we're excited about. And you also see businesses playing a role on the customer side of things, that the community solar program in Minnesota is not just open to individual household members, uh, but businesses have been actually some of the bigger subscribers, companies like Ecolab or Target that have broad sustainability or climate goals themselves see this as an opportunity to green up their own energy use as a way to advertise to consumers that they are responsible corporate citizens. Okay. So one final question. For those well-meaning companies that would love to be better engaged with their communities, so the ones um, that do want to see that happen, as you described, what advice would you give to them um, about you know effective ways that they can engage and align their strategies more with their you know their local communities? I think one really important thing is to engage with like a local city council, for example, and uh, we can learn a lot of lessons. And one of the things ILSR really focuses on are what are the ways in which cities can work with their local business community to be successful around climate. Uh, one of the lessons that we've learned in Minneapolis, for example, where I've helped work with the city's clean energy partnership, this is a kind of a first in the nation partnership between the city and its two energy utilities focused on reaching ambitious climate goals. And one of the things that we have laid out as part of uh, the process is, number one, how do we have a way to represent the voices of businesses on that uh, advisory committee. So there's a citizen advisory committee and we have uh, a couple of seats that have often been held by either like the downtown business association or other representatives of small businesses. So I think that number one is really important is hearing those voices in those conversations. Um, some of the policies that we've been able to pursue that I think are important to ask for are like matching grant assistance for small businesses to do energy efficiency improvements or to put solar on uh, their property. Uh, one of the things we've learned is that large businesses have like a dedicated sustainability officer or an energy manager. And so they're out, they're often on the lookout already for the kinds of energy programs that can serve them. Small businesses often don't have that capacity. You know, the bookstore owner, the pharmacy owner, they're really focused on just how do they do their core business. And so can we help, can cities help by providing a small amount of money that can help juice that opportunity for these businesses to help reduce their costs, which then can make them more competitive, maybe give them a little more leeway to help their business grow. Um, I think we're also really interested in, in other policies. So for example, one of the things that Minneapolis has done is uh, have commercial businesses uh, benchmark and disclose their energy use as a way to get information about how businesses are performing, but then also to help them with energy services. And so thinking about are there interesting ways that the business community can talk to the city about um, uh, getting information, energy use information from businesses so that the city can help. And then the final thing I would say is anytime the city's giving out grant money, it should be looking to local businesses to help provide the services uh, that the city is involved in. So if the city is going to be uh, in helping local businesses or residents do energy efficiency improvements in their property, then there should be some kind of like local hiring and local business provisions uh, in that saying, hey, if we're going to give out city money, let's look to our local business community to supply the workforce and the work that we're going to need uh, to accomplish those climate goals. We're just 10 days out from our announcement of our 2019 class of 30 under 30s, the rising stars of sustainable business. And it seemed a good opportunity to check in with past 30 under 30s to see how they're doing. So this week I talked to Jillian Lenartz, one of our 2016 honorees, and here's what she had to say. I'm currently unaffiliated. I like to say that I'm an independent consultant, mostly because I'll talk the ear off of anyone who will listen to me about sustainability and how they can use that to their advantage. So one of the things that's interesting about your situation is that um, your, comp your employer got acquired or merged and your job went away. So um, 
that's a fate of a 30 under 30 that we don't necessarily anticipate. How is that? Yeah, it, so it wasn't unforeseen. Uh, my, my entire team kind of knew that this was something that was going to happen. And I think it's a reality that sustainability professionals don't talk about. And if we do talk about it, it's kind of in, in hushed, hushed tones under Chatham House rules, is that our positions, unless they're central to the identity of a company, are a bit precarious. I, I joke with my friends that uh, I, I feel like some days I have to justify my existence. You have to have that business case ready to go saying, here's why you pay my salary. And you see that quite a bit with leadership that's more on the traditional uh, economic education with the single bottom line. So it, it's, not, it's a fate that's not unheard of uh, among sustainability professionals, but I feel like it's a reality that we don't speak about all that often. It's, it's not something positive. It's not looking forward to change and improvement, which is the mindset that many of, of our profession have. And so it's an interesting reality check, I'll say that, but it's not without its opportunities. So speaking of opportunities, it seems like you're not only changing jobs, but you may be changing nationalities. Yes. So within 24 hours of me submitting my request for consideration for permanent residency in Canada, I was invited to apply, which is a very quick turnaround time. It's I think on a Thursday, I submitted my application on their online governmental portal. And the next day they said, yeah, come on in, send us all of your information. So it's been about six months of going through the documentation. And in less than 50 days, I should have my permanent residency in Canada. And then what? <laughs> and then I'm heading up to Vancouver. Um, it, I'm... I'm very enthusiastic about moving to Canada. Um, I, if anyone's been sort of watching north of the border, the government is doing some really interesting things around climate change and green growth, well, clean growth and um, sustainable growth. So I'm, as a former climate change scientist who's now doing sustainability, doing ESG, I'm very enthusiastic, kind of chomping at the bit to get up there and, and provide some support. I do have some leads. Vancouver is a, a tech heavy area. And as you know, I'm a huge technophile. So I've been in some discussions with uh, various companies up there uh, about potentially some contract work or starting that conversation once I do touch down in Canada. So it sounds like you're going to land squarely with your feet on the ground. No surprise. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. It's um, it's been an interesting few months just as someone who enjoys doing things, having to take that pause and um, find other things to do to occupy my time has been great. I've been writing some things, just musings and um, sustainability 101 articles on LinkedIn. Um, just because I've these conversations I've been having with people, a lot of times it's, yeah, these these super clusters sound great. This sustainable development sounds great, but what are you talking about? <laughs> so for those, you know, the average Joes out there, I've, I've started explaining, Hey, here's what climate change is. Here's how it works. And it's been, it's been fun. It's keeping myself busy. Well, we'll look forward to keeping in touch. Jillian Lenartz, uh, formerly with CA technologies, now a free agent headed North. Thanks, Jill. Thank you. Hey there, this is Katie Fahrenbacher, senior writer for Green Biz, and last week I headed down to the heart of Silicon Valley for an event for Plug and Play. If you don't know the group, they're the largest accelerator that connects big companies with cutting-edge tech startups. Last week they held one of their demo days, which is where all of the startups across each vertical, from Internet of Things to mobility, take the stage and pitch their companies and ideas to a room full of investors, corporates, and the media. I've been to a half a dozen of their events over the years, and the building tends to get so full that it's not unheard of for the local fire marshal to come by and complain. The walls of the lobby in their Sunnyvale office are completely covered with logos of startups that have gone through their program over the years, like in the early days, Dropbox and PayPal, and more recently, like speech recognition startup Soundtown. Last week, I spent the day with the Energy Group, which is a newer program created by Wade Bitteroff. 
In the Spring Summit last week, Plug and Play graduated their fourth cohort, a group of 14 startups, many of which are using AI and machine learning to help better manage energy infrastructure. Wade spends his days working with startup entrepreneurs and scouting out what types of technology will change the energy industry. After the startup pitches at the Spring Summit last week, I chatted with Wade about what types of technology he's seen in the energy market. AI, machine learning are kind of tools that may apply um, across the board. So our, our landscape is pretty broad, anywhere from molecules and electrons to, to devices, systems, and, and more importantly, frankly speaking, integrated systems of systems. So we see a whole swath of technologies that can create new metrics that can inform dialogues for you know, asset managers and operators to make smarter decisions in reducing cost and reducing risk in maintaining their assets. And um, so we, we see a lot of interesting technologies around predictive analytics, preventive maintenance. Um, and, and quite frankly, half of my job is to find some of the technologies, pending technologies that might impact energy business. So, uh, you know, we're excited to cross-pollinate from different industry verticals that we have here that are going on for uh, quite a, t- quite a uh, number of years and uh, create new revenue streams for our energy partners. Of course, more revenue doesn't necessarily mean cleaner and decarbonized energy systems. So I asked Wade how sustainability is playing a role for his energy partners and startups. I, I've been pleasantly surprised for the past two or three years. You know, most of our partners today, cost allocation, investment decisions, and, and a lot of activities as it relates to innovation are driven by sustainability metrics. In fact, some of, some of our partners, executives groups are compensated based on some of these sustainability metrics. And we're talking, you know, heavy machineries, oil and gas companies that, you know, I'd argue might be some of the most polluting uh, industries out there. And, and for these kind of stakeholders, uh, a small change and incremental improvement in their greenhouse gas emissions can uh, translate to a significant impact in, in the global gas, global uh, climate uh, actions and, and concerns. One of Plug and Play Energy Group's newest partners is oil company Philips 66. Yep, the huge oil refiner in Houston that has capacity to refine over 2 million barrels of crude oil per day. They own miles of pipeline and a huge network of terminals to process and move around all that oil. In the morning at the Spring Summit, I sat down with Philips 66 Business Transformation Manager Sean Bionic to explain to me why Philips 66 wants to connect with tech startups. We're just getting started. We're starting to stand up a new digital ventures arm, and uh, basically what we're trying to do is to inject innovation into the company, either by changing the mindset of people that are there, looking at new technologies that we can apply to our business, and or uh, maybe even going more to a defensive posture against those threats from our competitors and regulators at the same time. So it's an exciting time. Uh, We're trying to learn as fast as we can, adopt some of the principles and ways of working, and uh, we hope that it will mean growth and productivity for our business. What kind of startups and technology are you looking to work with? What, what problems are you looking to solve? Sure. Uh, we have a lot of uh, assets uh, from the refineries themselves, lots of huge, huge equipment uh, that needs maintenance. Uh, we look for predictability on their health and maintaining those and making those uh, produce high yields. Uh, we have miles and miles, actually thousands of miles of uh, pipelines uh, in our midstream business, and so we're constantly trying to keep those flowing uh and without interruption as well as um, we have a large training group and uh, so we're interested in natural language processing and, and data analytics around predicting our forecast demands and so forth and mainly it's it's to get the right product in the right place at the for the right price of course the most exciting aspect of the spring summit is the energy ambition and creative thinking of all of the startups The energy program heard pitches from 14 entrepreneurs with ideas like a mobile on-demand electric vehicle charger or artificial intelligence to watch power lines carefully for a sign of wildfire or analytics to predict when parts of a wind turbine might fail. After all the pitches in the day, I pulled aside one of the entrepreneurs, Sandeep Gupta, so I could learn more about how he's planning to help clean energy providers save money. Sandeep, what does Ensemble Energy do? Ensemble takes the predictive maintenance to the next level. We are working with clean energy power plants and we are 
making prescriptive analytics possible. Currently, all most of energy power plants are very reactive in nature, costing them $27 billion worldwide in O&M cost. We want to cut that down by 30 to 50%. How we do that? We take all the data, structured, unstructured data, put it through our cloud system, and combine it with deep physics, understanding of the systems, components like mechanical components, gearboxes, electrical components, and build these very accurate predictive models and tell our customers which components are not operating properly, what needs to be done, how much are they underproducing that they can actually capture. By doing that, we are able to really reduce the cost of electricity from renewable sources, making them even better compared to conventional sources. So give me an example. So say you're working with a, a wind provider, um, how would you help them out? Yeah. So a wind provider, you know, again, their primary core strength is running and uh, developing and operating projects. The AI and machine learning is not their core strength. So we take their data and we ingest all this data to basically predict their asset health. Uh, an example of that, we're working with uh, EDF, for example. They have gearbox failures. Each gearbox failure can cost as much as $500,000 to replace on a wind turbine. And if you are able to prevent that, and we have been able to prevent that, that is a huge cost saving. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com 350 to find out more about the organization, the stories and events we mentioned this week. And while you're there, check out our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. I'll be out next week, but Heather will be here this time with Shauna Rappaport for another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. <laughs>